Stop talking so I can think. Uh, do you know what I did in naming these? I named them 5, 6, and 7 instead of 1, 2, and 3. Mm -hmm. Because it's like September... Instead of like today's date, yes. Instead of five part one, I put five, then six, then seven. Yeah, that's that's something I did. You sure did. Do you have that thing? To and you plug it in the side. I'm so tired. I've been talking. Oh, uh, the USB. Yes, I'm talking for an hour and a half, and I'm already exhausted. Yeah, yeah, I have the USB drive that I typically use for video file transfers. They should fit right in, right? I presume these audio files are very small. I have to, I have to export them and save them and then export them and then edit them yeah, and then edit them the and edit them and edit them. I don't remember what the problem was, and I'm going to ignore whatever the problem was. You can't dwell on old problems because new problems show up. Yeah. Much like nostalgia. Yeah, you can't dwell on old games because there are new games. It's like, yeah, I could play all these games on my hard drive, or I could buy new ones. This is the Internet's Worst Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Loki Jarson. Uh, with me, did it again. With me once again is my brother, Lord Master, also known as Thomas. Earl Thomas Drummond, hello. Yeah, we're still not doing that. That's been like a 10-year-old joke we're not explaining. Uh, how have you been? What have you been playing? Oh, uh, just a couple of things over the past, since late May, um... Got into that new game, which we mentioned compared to Rome in a previous podcast back in yes. uh, June, um, where I did two video series on that. One where I played as Tarentum, a a Greek city-state, not in Greece, but in Magna Graecia, southern Italy, in which we turned Tarentum into uh, a regional power called the Italiote League, and quickly renamed it into Magna Graecia for the majority of the series, and then we expanded into Greece itself and then united all of Greece and we became known as the Hellenic League on the final episode. And uh, I did a second series which has just recently concluded this past um, week with uh, Massalia. Again, I don't know when I post these so it wouldn't date it. Anyways, uh, the second playthrough I did of Peritorum was uh, Massalia which is the ancient Greek colony in the western part of Europe. In Massalia, modern-day Marseille, France, where we've expanded it from parts of southern France and into Iberia, Spain. Not all of it, just the coastal parts. And even gone as far north as Britannia, southern England to be exact, even reaching Stonehenge. And then we decided to go further, all the way to the land of Thule, Norway. pretty far so as of right now uh, but that's not the real topic since we talked about the game before it's just wanted to catch up of what I've been up to as of late yeah you finish that off now 
the future. So, now to the future. Well, before we talk about this recently released game, first I'm going to talk real quick about some old, obscure game from the early to mid-90s. Mm -hmm. Another roguelike that I've never heard of? No, not a roguelike. It's pretty straightforward. It's one, you know, it's one of them, you know, shareware type bullshit games. Mm -hmm. It's called Murder. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, this was really dumb. Yeah, Murder, 1994. So again, the what the scenario is about is you are stranded on a desert island with four of your worst enemies. No, not at a time, but one at a time. You have two options: killed or be killed. Very, very straightforward. First, you select your, you know, opponent, your worst enemy. Um, pull down menu, then position him slash her, picking him a point on the screen with the mouse. A figure representing yourself appears on the right side of the screen, and you use your arrow keys to move around in the left fucking mouse to fire the pistol at it. And those four worst enemies are, again, one at a time. First, you gotta murder your boss. Then you murder your ex-wife, then you murder some geek, and finally, murder your mother-in-law. How is some geek your worst enemy? No idea. I have vague recollection of this dumbass game from a long time ago when we got, like, a CD-ROM of... A thousand is, plus games. Yeah, this is definitely, like, Windows 98 era of computing. Which is, so. which is so one of the... It's one of the very few games not murdered, but there's plenty of other ones I... Wish I could go back and play all of it, but, but I would. But I would have to of, wait. There's a lot of like nice gems on there, um, but there's a lot of garbage. I would say like 95% of it is garbage. And this murder thing I saw uh, our other brother Nick play it once, and it's, it's just it's shit. I don't like looking at it. I don't like the premise. I think it's stupid. You recorded a video for your channel, or you're just playing this. Yes, I actually recorded it on my channel, but that was way back in 2017. Oh. Again, it's just, it's an obscure game, and I'm surprised hardly anybody's done a video on it, so I decided, well, let's put it on my channel. It only has 19 views so far, because it's obscure. Well, Who maybe knows? people don't like to see, well, you just title plus, it Murder? Yeah, if you just title Murder, always go to some murder case, both old and new. Yeah, investigative discovery, 24-hour murder coverage. And if you type Murder 1994, it could lead to, well... More old news coverage of murder in 1994. Yeah. OJ, etc. Yeah, that that was the most prevalent. And some um, Telugu language movie called Murder. Telugu is uh, one of the Indian languages. Well, that's horrible. Yeah, and finally, uh, about that game. When you go, you know how in some games you go to help and you say contents or about? Mm hmm. The about of the game, Murder, it says, Murder is not generally advisable. The game, I would agree. The game is not generally advisable. <laughs> Who in a right mind would create that game back in 94, as if you create anything? Well, Game Maker, as we understand it, didn't really exist back then, so I, don't, I couldn't tell you what the program was. Because it's stupid-ass little sprite art. But, uh, I would assume someone who... Like, uh, a 38-year-old guy who had, like, an afternoon on his hands, if I had to guess. It could be. 
Anyways, that's far more time than that game deserved. I'm so glad you sprung that on me, because you've been keeping that one a secret. Yeah. Plus, like, you oh, could, got, you could beat that game in game. two minutes. I've got this old game that I want to tell you about. I was like, okay, fine. I guess we'll make it a surprise. Oh, it's that thing. Cool. Next. Well, in the next game, and sometimes it involves, well, more murder. Yes, but it, for the greater good. Uh, depending on what you believe in. Um, and, of course, we talked about Imperator Rome, which is a game made by Paradox Interactive. Well, just recently, Paradox Interactive has released another grand strategy game with role-playing game elements. And that is the sequel to Crusader Kings 2. It's Crusader Kings 3! How original a title. When, when, when did 2 come out? 2012. Fuck. When they made their last big DLC, Holy Fear, as it was called for Crusader Kings 2, they say the game, as, it, as far as the engine was concerned, they were hanging on by a thread. So that's when they felt it's about time to create a whole nother game. So what's new? Plenty of things. Um, but of course, there's many things, including the DLCs that they put in Crusader Kings 2. Some of that has been carried over into the new game, the base game, so to speak, as there are no new updates or DLCs as of yet. I mean, this is literally week one as of this recording. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of those guys who played Sir Kings for a living as, oh yeah, by the way, before I even got my hands on that game, which I did pre-order, some of the people actually got early access as they were sponsored by Paradox Interactive. That's how, that's how these things work. They give them to what they call influencers. Yeah. Who have lots of, uh, channel followers and be like, here, you play this. But you can't say anything negative about it, or otherwise we'll take it away. And plus, they'll pay you. I get that, but it, it comes with a clause. The clause is you can't be judgmental. Like any... I assume the people you watch in these things, I'd rather not name them if you could, please. The people yeah. you watch for these early access videos um, don't review the game, they just play it, right? They just experience it like it's their first time. Okay. Which means they don't have anything negative to say, because they're not reviewing it for critical with, for critical use. Uh, just like this one guy I watched, which again, not going to name names, um, in which he says uh, when they looked at all those reviews, especially professional game reviewers of the game, they were the, the guy says, I think they were being too generous of that game. I mean, it could have a few issues early on, which they'll no doubt fix it. Well, they fixed, I don't want to say fixed, but they updated Crusader Kings 2 for eight years, basically. Seven years. So they could update three for years to come. Uh-huh, um, and, and I would be around for those years at the most part, um, depending on commitment. Anyways, before we get into what the game actually has, it's like, th this brings up a, a broader general topic of, like, I don't terribly mind the idea of an advanced copy for review, you know, if you're some sort of quote-unquote video game journalist, but, like, this past year alone, just, like, 2020, has been such a shit year for video game journalism. That was industry. It. No, I don't even know about that because it's not journalism anymore. It's it's become what modern, you know, mainstream, I don't want to even say this term, mainstream journalism has become, which is reporting on rumors and speculations and maybe this might have happened, seems, madam. Um, it, it appears have, it seems have, and it may have. Sources indicate. My sources say... 
There's no news there. They're just, you know, shit stirrers. Like, I'll name this guy, Jason Stryer, just stirring up shit for the sake of stirring up shit. And yes, a lot of people at major companies have been suspended or fired for actions that may or may not have even happened because we can't prove it. It's like, oh, you wrote a text message. That proves you're... you're uh... I'm going to edit that part out. Anyways. <laughs> I was about to say something very disparaging. My point being, I don't trust video game reviewers anymore, like at all. Uh, I don't care what they have to say, positive or negative, because it's opinion, and also because it comes down to scores, right? Everything is numbers. Years ago, I, just, I realized that the 10 system of, of rating video games is a stupid system. And while 5 isn't perfect, I think like 3, like a 3 scale, like yes, maybe no. Something as simplistic as that is possibly the best way to review anything. Because, you know, fucking a movie gets four and a quarter stars. What does that mean? What is that quarter? What is that little tiny spec? You know, IGN gives whatever bullshit game this year a 9.2. What does that mean? What is the point two? Where do you come up with these arbitrary ancillary numbers that don't mean anything? Either we should get rid of review numbers entirely or simplify them to a yes, maybe, no situation. And also, uh, this has been a problem for 20 years. They have to be reviewed by committee. Every website, because they're so busy all the time, they assign a game to an individual reviewer, right? So that individual reviewer gives his opinion. But it's that one guy's opinion. Or girl. So... They review yeah. it like it's a gospel. Yeah, yes. But we... And we... Uh, I'll just use a, a website as a pure example, not calling out a game. IGN assigns one person to review a new game that came out this year. This one person gave the review, you know, a high nine out of 10, although technically because they use points, it's out of 100, which is another problem with the 9 scale. Um, I mean, it goes like 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, that kind of crap. So it ends up being a 100 scale rather than a 10 scale. Uh, but it is that one person's review, and so we all take it to mean, well, that means IGN as in totalis as a whole gave that game a high 9, whether or not it deserves it, and that's not what it means. It means that one person who was assigned that one review gave it that score. So reviews should be done by committee so you get multiple perspectives on a thing. But they're not, which is why you have review bombing the other side where dumbass websites like Metacritic get bombarded with user reviews that pur purposefully lower the score of something that didn't deserve to be a super high score if it were actually looked with actual criticism. So the guys you watched to bring us all back to Crusader Kings 3 I'm going to assume nobody actually criticized the game during their previews. Uh, nothing that I know of. And I'm not trying to avoid them, it's just I haven't seen any. Yeah. Because you already made your decision. It's not, this is not like, I don't know if I should buy it yet. Yeah, but it's like, well, pre-ordering is like signing up for something. I guess. I've only pre-ordered two games in the last three years. No, four years. So... Is a big rarity for me, but I don't wait for reviews. I wait for whether or not I want to. Anyways, enough negativity. What do you or like, lack thereof. What do you like about the game, the new game, to create Seder Kings Three? I mean, compared to the second, well, obviously it's you know up to standard graphically. I mean, it looks aesthetically very pleasing, especially like when you zoom out to the whole world map, like. Just picture an old medieval-style map that's on paper, right? Yeah. That's the worldview, um, in which the 
which much like with Crusader Kings 2 and Imperator Rome, the map spans from Iceland to India. Um, even though they did extend a little bit compared to the previous releases, where you get more of the sub-Saharan Africa areas, mm. um, even in the Somalia too, and they even expanded a little bit of east of India into Burma. Which but, yes, no, but no, like, Russia or China. Oh, no, you get a big chunk of Russia, the Siberia parts, too. Um, but but the only China you get, just like with Crusader Kings 2, you only go as far as eastern Tibet. What's the age this takes place? I mean, like, a, you know, 1000 AD to whatever. They only have two start dates in the game, at least for now. Uh, one is 867, and that's right smack dab in the middle of the Viking Age. And the other is the uh, 1066 start date. That's the high Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. uh, very beginning of it. Which is basically end of Viking Age and into the uh, high medieval. The feudal system and all that. Yeah, and that comes applied to the technologies. They define the ages by technology as well. Mm. Um which that technology is typically static around that time, but they have like four different kinds of eras in technology that they messed with in the game a little, compared to the old one. Is um, is it the earliest they call it tribal, then early medieval, then uh, high medieval, then late medieval. That's kind of like how we define them. Okay. Uh, so so basically, no gunpowder, is what we're saying. No. That was in the second game. Well, there, it was the Hermetic Society thing, like if you research uh, a rare technology, uh, it's, it's within a scientific society, where one guy gets an idea, and it's like, hey, let's experiment this, and then, boom, you create a handgun. You know, a freaking hand cannon. You know, those just two. Sure. Nothing else. No trigger, no stunt. Anyways. Whew. Yeah, they pretty much um, did uh, plenty of changes to the game to be more into the role-playing uh, aspect. It's like, we know it's a grand real-time strategy game, but it's more role-playing game elements. Um, since this is a character-driven game compared to something like Imperator Rome, or some of the other ones, which is more nation-building. I mean, yeah, you could build your nation too, but also they care more for your characters and those around you. You play as an individual? Yes. And including every single one of these characters has their own unique, you know, set of traits or whatever lifestyle that they've been pursuing over the years. I mean, obviously, you know, they have the five different skills, and which is also part of your attributes. And that's... You know, the skills are diplomacy, martial, stewardship, intrigue, and learning. And that's further up based on whatever your character's education is from. Although, uh, it's like I could tell you about the lifestyle thing that'll further up on your skill perks. Um, again, I mean, let's just put you as an example. Just try to have fun with it. I mean, like, what kind of an education did you have? Like, are you a diplomacy guy? Are you a martial guy? You stewardship, intrigue, or learning? What kind of guy are you? I'm given these four incredibly abstract examples. I'd probably say learning. I enjoy uh -huh. learning things. Yeah, um, the learning uh, skill, which 
which they have like each of these skills as we mentioned that they've added three you know perk trees you know sub think, sub sub skills yes you know kind of like in skyrim i mean again we use that as a prime example where they have every single skill has its own perk tree right yes and and we'll take learning for example and there's three focuses you could pick uh, for a guy of learning uh, who's into learning even if his education isn't of that like like would you either focus on medicine or scholarship or theology like each of them has its own you know bonuses of which one are you focus the medicine for example that's plus one learning and a small health boost scholarship is for plus three learning and plus 15 development growth development is in your counties you know development based on you know the fertility of the part of the country. You know, how well developed it is how s compared how to civilization. The rate of which people multiply? Sure. Um, also the taxation and levies that they give it to you. Mm. Um, and each of these, um, and now that you've picked your focus, then you go into these um, perk trees. Like, if you go the medicine route, um, like, Again, it branches off, right, um, from this tree, right? You know how the tree looks like. Like, if you pick one skill, you're going this route. And then yes. you make its way down. But you can't unlock the last thing until you go to the other way now to get the rest of the perks. And until you finally get to what you wanted. And that is a whole nother lifestyle trait. How do you get these perks? I'm assuming it's not a point system, but how do you get these points? Just... Um, it you'll get them over time. F further bonus if you are doing it based on your education. Like say if you're a martial guy and yet you're going to the learning focus, you'll get less experience over time. You'll accumulate over time. But there are some events that pop up that can help you increase the experience points for the said, you know, sure. skill. So you can unlock a perk each time. This sounds so much... This makes so much more sense than anything you've ever said about 2 or Imperator Rome. And yet, I only played the game once. I haven't played it since it came out. So, you haven't made any videos for this yet? No, um, not yet, because the videos that I've recorded from the previous series are still yet to be posted, so I don't want to rush it. I understand. And, um, and I'm not 100% ready or confident and commitment to do such a undertaking that'll take two or three months. Yeah. Because these are all long games. Like, what's the... Nah, that's not a great... What's the average play time? Well, an average play time based on... Like, start to finish. You start in AD 720 or whatever the hell you said, and then until it's too... until the late medieval age. Like, uh, not day-in, day-out recordings, right? Not recordings, but just playing the game. I'm trying to remember from my very first CK2 playthrough. I think a week or slightly more. It depends on the um, the game speed that you adjust. Do you adjust it slow or adjust it fast? So it's all game speed. It's all at your discretion. Well, again, you know, I'm not saying it's appealing, but it's certainly more understanding or understandable than the previous series of games you've told me about are. 
yeah, one, uh, yeah, another guy who, not gonna name names, um, that he puts it as like it's kind of like CK2, but more easy to get into. Sure. I still would never touch it, but that's because I have an adverse reaction to strategy games. But, uh, this one certainly sounds a lot more streamlined. Yeah, uh, in fact, that's another word that, uh, Revere often use. They made it streamlined. It's not dumbed down. I guess there's a difference between something being dumbed down and something being simplified for the sake of ease. Uh-huh. So each of these, you know, skills are related to has its own set of events, um, including uh, especially intrigue on part where they've done more than just assassinations or plots to fabricate claims on certain titles that you wanted. Let's just say that you not only scheme to try to assassinate somebody, but uh, in fact there's two kinds of schemes. One personal and the other is, you know, that we mentioned. The personal is mostly just to sway somebody, you know, just to try to get this guy into a more positive opinion to you. Right. Um, uh, not only in the intrigue is just involved assassination, but if you do the um, intrigue perk tree, especially the one that's for schemer on that side, you could also potentially fabricate hooks, which hooks his favors in a game. You know, as in IOU something? Sure. Like you could uh, get hooks on characters. Two kinds of hooks. A weak hook and a strong hook. The uh, weak hook is, it's like, yeah, the guys owe you something, but he could potentially be reluctant of whatever thing you're trying to get out of. Whether if it's uh, a feudal contract, which is another thing they add in the game, like feudal contracts for your vassals, um, where you could adjust their tax rate or levy rate like if you want to increase the high taxes they would normally refuse and they say hey that's tyranny but if you got a hook on a guy he can't say no to it just <laughs> so gotta... so blackmail yes and blackmail yes that's another way to use your hooks you blackmail for hooks and it's very useful if you send your spy master out to either your own court or on somebody else's court if you're trying to get somebody that, of interest Unless you're a vassal to another country, where there's no shortage of secrets to be found. What's the word for corrupted that they keep using in this game? It's not corrupt, it's... Oh, not sure. Uh, is, it corrupt, is it corrupt or tyranny? There's one of those things that you were like, you were telling me about in your Rome place, or that you didn't want to become... Uh, yeah, there's actually, uh, they're both distinct, corruption and tyranny. Okay, well, they seem like the same thing, but okay. Yeah, corruption is mostly monetary and wages. And uh, tyranny is just, oh, you've done something that's kind of law-breaking. Hmm, if only our American system could learn the difference. Anyways. And, and again, the weak hook, uh, again, is just, it's like you may accept it, but they're still reluctant on it. Even if you get away with no tyranny, if you're going to be adjusting the man's taxes or levy rates that they're going to give it to you. A strong hook is basically 100% yes. It's, well, it's an offer you cannot refuse. Hmm. Especially this one part from another perk that you can get from stewardship, where you demand payment. You use these hooks to give you money. It's interesting. Like I say, say, look, 
there's a lot of secrets that could be found or discovered. Whether it's, it's the guy who's trying to assassinate somebody, or has a lover in a court. Or, or you can just make shit up. Yeah, the fabricate for hooks. Yeah, that, that's another part that they have as part of the intrigue. And another scheme that you can do with an intrigue, you can pick up another perk, and that is give you the scheme to kidnap somebody, abduct somebody. I've seen uh, one of the developers of the game play that, um, and they managed to kidnap the King of France, a heist, <laughs> to grab the king so they could put him in a dungeon, not to keep him there, so they could ransom him. The king's ransom. Hmm. Steal a rich guy, another way of source of income. Or blackmail sure. a guy and give you money, yeah, and, and you don't want it, his secret to be revealed. Sure, I've seen that movie. What's that? Uh, Kidnapping Mr. Heineken. Never heard of it. Uh, it was an indie film, even though it starred Anthony Hopkins as the guy who created the Heineken beer empire. And like in the 70s or 80s, a couple of goons kidnapped him and ransomed him, but it didn't end well for any of them, obviously. So yeah, that's pretty much it for the skullduggery part. Again, there's a lot of different paths, which will probably take too much time on the scheming part. It's an example. It's an example of the in-depthness that this game goes into per branch. Yes. Yes. Um, whether if you want to be a family man, or be a gallant man, or be a rich guy, or be a that's the skullduggery type of guy, or seducer, or torturer. Or for the learning guy, you'd be more of a theologian or a scholar. Yeah, you could be all kinds, depending on the guy's education, if you want to level up faster. Hmm. As well as the traits that you have. And of course, this is all like building heirs, so you got to make sure your heirs have the right stuff, too. And hope that you marry the right person with good traits. Not just personality, but traits that you um, inherit. Hmm. Whether if the guy is going to be attractive, or smart, or strong. So now it's a eugenics program. Yeah, you better hope you get a marry the right person and you get a good breeding program going on. <laughs> as long as you don't marry uh, somebody close to you. Unless you're a Zoroastrian. Oh, the less said about that, the better. Why'd you have to bring that up? Well, that's uh, st still one of the most popular religions of the game, said by people who played it. Well, fuck them. Anyways, uh, you having fun? You like this new game? Uh, oh yeah, but uh, the warfare is a bit, again, not too familiar. Again, the last, the first experience I just played as a vassal somebody where I didn't get too much into trouble. Unless I have to help out an ally that I am married to. You know how marriage alliances work? Sure. There is no such thing as naval combat, um, because that's pretty much not a thing in medieval times. Yeah, nobody had boats. <laughs> the Vikings took all their boats and went home. Yeah, unless unless something happened during the Dark Ages where they forgot the interest, uh, uh, intricacies of naval combat. And just only used it for transport. Well, there's less need for it, right? Like, what do you need a boat for when you're in medieval England? To go to France? So what? I recall in medieval history, the only legitimate navy, so to speak, that can go combat was the Byzantines. Because they yeah, still, they, they they still also, left over. They also live in an area where there's a lot more water. 
around England, aside from the channel, there's no land to go to water. Do you want to go to Iceland? whoop de doo uh, and, and to mention, uh, the Byzantine Empire, compared to all the other nations, is actually the most advanced. Them and the Arabian Empire are the most advanced civilizations of the medieval times. Well, that's also true in real history. In the realm of science and architecture? Math and literature, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and then and you go to Western Europe and they know fuck all of it. They just gave up. They said, we're just going to sit here in our thatched job hut and trade cattle. Alright, um, so we talked about, you know, how things work at court, um, which, again, uh, one more thing, um, and that only tribal and uh, feudal and clans are the only playable governments. The clan part is for the um, Islamic nations. They do it by clan system. Uh, can't play as a merchant republic as of yet, and cannot play as a theocracy, obviously. Because why on earth would you want to play as a papacy? Because you could in the other game? Yeah, EU4, Europa Versailles 4, where you're allowed to play as a theocracy. I'm sure there'll be lots of DLC anyways. Or mods by, by a community. Which I haven't looked for any mods. It's a recently released game. Just wait a couple months. See what way or may not interest me. Now, anyways. On to uh, warfare. Um, I mean, every war needs a Cassius Valley. Or the cause for war, right? Here, that goes into three categories. General, conquest, and holy war. Um, the general part said you could start a war by different means. Where if you have a claim on an area. Or... You fight for independence if you're a vassal somebody, or unless you're tribal and you want to subjugate somebody, <laughs> and also if you are of a um, a faith that has the human sacrifice tenant, you could raid for captives. And uh, and a conquest uh, um, CB, um, but they like to use the jargon shortened CB, um, uh, where. Uh, who have a clan or tribal government whose faith has a warmonger or pursuit of power tenants can do conquests. Just simply grab them. But it'll cost you some uh, prestige. If you And also the level of the said fame. Such as if you want to grab a county, you got to have the established level of fame. A duchy, you got to be illustrious. If you want the whole damn kingdom, you got to be exalted among men. That's the levels of fame. And then the Holy War CB, um, basically anybody that's against any religion that is considered evil or hostile. Which you can just say they are. Oh no, they now define it by levels now. Of religious view towards one another, which we'll talk more about a little bit more of the religion in a moment. But anyways, the Holy War against those of a different faith, or an entirely, or different religious families, so to speak. If you want to grab a county, your required level devotion has to be dutiful, which is, you know, the lowest level. Uh, to grab a whole duchy, you got to be faithful. And then the kingdom, paragon of virtue. So that's just increase of levels, and as well as the increase of the said cost that you are going to spend the piety with. Even though grabbing the whole kingdom seems like an equivalent of a crusade, but that is a separate war in and itself, but in a much grander scale. Crusades, jihads, great holy wars. 
Yeah, th that's how you, you know, start the, the said things. Except for the Crusades, you know, the Great Holy Wars, that's usually started by a religious head. Like the Pope, or the Caliph. And then you are at war, and of course we mentioned there's no navies, but there are land forces, armies, if you will. They made a significant change to it. Um, compared to just having... In CK2, you got armies, unless you are overloaded with those, and then you got to split them in army groups. And then, each of these armies, you assign three commanders. Center flank, left flank, and right flank. They simplified just having one commander for the whole army. Right? Mm -hmm. Less paperwork. Mm -hmm. So, um, the bulk of the armies are levies, which are conscripted peasants that are not very impressive on their own, but used in great numbers to complement the more important troops, or as a meat shield. Another important thing in warfare. And yet people often get that misconception of when they look at actual medieval history, like like all the uh, armies that they face, they're all professionals. No, small number of them were professionals. Most of them are just conscripts. Yeah, that's why you take territory, take the peasants, to make the peasants do things. Get them to do all the work. Pretty much. So if you want the real badasses, if you will, you have to get knights. Um, that's what they call the Europeans, their guys, knights. Um, Arabs call it Faris, and uh, Pagans, they call them Champions, and Indians got an entirely different name that I don't know how to pronounce as of yet. But you get the idea, right? Their characters that fight in the army, and their combat power is determined by their prowess skill, a separate skill that replaces close, no, excuse personal combat skill. I would assume all of these characters are actual individual characters with their own traits like you would have. All of the unique characters and as well as certain traits that helps increase their prowess. So basically like when you go into battle, sure your levies will kill some and most of them get killed. The ones who do a lot of killing are the knights. Based on their skill of course. Is there something higher than that? I've seen, you know, guy who got like a kill count of 200 over, like if my average one who often gets like 20 or 50. I'm saying, is there like a, a level higher than knight? Uh, no, that's just a classification. And plus, uh, most of the knights that I've gotten from my experience of combat, they're all like average to low level prowess skill. And if you want to get better ones, well, spend your prestige and invite more knights. Especially if you're running low of those. It's basically posting a sign that says, um, Knights Wanted. And then the guests would come in. Um, guest is an actual term. There's a difference between a guest and a courtier. A guest means there's a character in your, in your court, but he's not in your court yet. He's in your country. He's just wandering around. And if, and if when you examine the guy, it's like, oh, I want him. Well, spend ten gold to get him into your court. And are often automatically become knights based on their skill. Um, and if you're thinking about, as you mentioned, what's higher than knight? Well, then there's a commander. You know, somebody's going to run the whole army. I mean, an army cannot be run by warriors, unless you are one of those people that where warriors become uh, soldiers. 
I've never been in the military, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, we don't have that kind of background. So a commander's going to lead an army. Oh, well then. <laughs> and there's another problem. It's like, yeah, you got a good commander, but all and you got your kick-ass knights, and yet your guys are still full of levies. Where are the real professionals? Well, you can get them by obviously spending money on it for what they call men-at-arms. They are the trained ones that comes in several different regiment types, which exile in their given role. Like you could have, uh, these are the regular examples. Like you could have a regiment of bowmen or light footmen, which they're skirmishers. Light horsemen, like cavalry, pikemen, armored footmen, armored horsemen, and crossbowmen. Those are your regular ones. Every country, based on their culture, has their own unique men-at-arms. Sure. Such as the cataphracts from the Byzantines, or the camel cavalry from the um, Arabs, or, or the famous English and Welsh longbowmen. Or the uh, Iberian Carbidiaros. Those are the examples from, you know, those areas. Yes, special squads, I get it. Mm -hmm. And unlike the past games, they have their own Menadarm regiment for siege weapons. Because, you know, back in the older games, like if you want to take a barony or a castle and whatnot, it's going to take you a while. It could take you months, if not a year, if it's well fortified. Well, you can bring siege weapons if you got the money and the maintenance for it to have them around. So that way the siege progress could go a little faster to take territory. And of course, all the armies carry the amount of supply with them. So it's best not to have a large number of troops as one army in an area where you can't really feed all of them or supply all of them. Because that's attrition damage. So that's why you got to split them up. So yeah, the combat is usually determined on the number of levies you bring, the number of knights that you have, the men-at-arms regiment versus theirs, and the terrain, the skill of the commander versus theirs, all that comes in a factor. Yeah, it's, it, they just um, really made it more extensive and realistic in a way of combat compared to CK2 where... It's usually determined on the terrain that you're fighting in, as well as the numbers you are bringing. Now I get it. And earlier we mentioned about one of the religious tenets, like human sacrifice, right? Yeah, that's where we come to this other big overhaul or change that really stood out to me, and that's the religions. You know, the very core of what kind of playstyle you're doing faiths they branch them off by three different families now abrahamic which is you know where christianity judaism and islam reside um there's the pagans and then there's the easterns the easterns being you know example zoroastrians hindus jains buddhists and taoists and the like yeah they have in total, and that includes the extinct religions, which can be revived, 90 plus different faiths in the game. That's too many. Uh huh. And the most widespread out of all of them is obviously Catholicism in Europe, except for the Eastern Orthodox, unless you're in the Byzantine Empire. And the 
Ashari is the most widespread of the Islamic faiths. That's basically Sunni Islam. Um, and uh, the further east you go, it gets a lot more messier with all the different faiths they have over there. And of course, the, you know, the pagans. And way more messier when you go to Sub-Saharan Africa, where there's all different kinds of pagan faiths down there, too. And, uh, it seems an unnecessary large amount. Yeah, it's just the... So you could say over in Europe, oh, it's easy to understand. The further you used to go, good lord, it's convoluted. So let's just say when you're in India, there's like a dozen different faiths over there. Not all of them are united. Just because they're called Hindu don't mean they don't follow the same single branch of it. They're all different kinds of it. Well, there's your cautious belly. Well, not exactly, because they have their own tolerance, um, especially if you're the Abrahamic ones. Like, regardless if you're a Christian, Jew, or a Muslim, let's say when they view one another, that's based on their levels. Like, like if a, a Catholic man views a Catholic man like one another, they're righteous. If a Catholic looks at a Orthodox, they view it as astray. It's like, ah, we just don't kind of like you, but not enough to cause for a holy war. If it reaches... The level of hostile and evil, oh yeah, that's for holy war. And we found... I would assume. So, so it's only the Abrahamic that is the least tolerant, and it's only the Eastern ones are the most tolerant. Like, let's say if a Buddhist were to look at a Christian or a Muslim, they just view it as hostile. Unless they have a certain tenet where they could view it as astray, where they're just not as hostile to them. Are these like fixed amounts always, or you can adjust these? depending on the faith that you are part of, each of them has their own three different tenets, including the views on gender, religious attitude, clerical tradition, ecumenicism, and their own doctrines on marriage, crime, and clergy. They can all be adjusted. Um, I mean, again, Catholic being a prime example, their main three tenets are armed pilgrimages, communion, and monastacism. And, uh, and we mentioned, why do they view the orthodoxy as astray? Well, here's the difference. They, they have in common is communion, monastagism. The only difference between the two is the pentarchy. That's what caused one different single tenet change, and then, well, then we don't think alike then. Hence the astray part. Eh, that's still good enough for a war for my taste. <laughs> uh -huh. And, of course, there's all different kinds of, you know, heresies. That the Abraham religions have, such as the Bogomilists, Catharism, Iconoclasm, Paulicianism, yeah, all these different kinds, including this one uh, that really stood out, even though it exists and couldn't be potentially be revived at your discretion. And that's the extinct or possibly fictional heresy called Adamatism. You know what that is? I can venture a guess, but you go ahead and tell me. Adamatism, again, we're just using this heresy as a prime example, Christian heresy as an example. The three tenets are communal identity, sanctity of nature, um, which sounds like hippies already, um, and natural primitivism, which means all of its inherits are naked. Yes, there's nudity in the game. Yeah, you mentioned this to me before and you were concerned because obviously we can't show that on YouTube. There's only two religions that has, you know, where the inherits go nude. That and this other branch of uh, Jainism. 
not the Dingabara, which those are the naked priests on. What I mean is people in general, that's the other branch that doesn't exist today, I think. Yeah, you got the you got the dingleberries hanging out, and you got the other guys. Yeah, the white cloth ones. Uh, so yeah, they're just all different kinds of families and branches out there. Hence the reason why there's 90 plus of them, including extinct ones that are listed and could potentially be revived. Which, by the way, when we mentioned about the skill trees, if you are of the learning skill and you take the scholar out. There's a perk where it helps you reduce the cost of changing your faith, even if it's a dead one. So you could say... So like for future potential challenge runs, you try to revive a dead religion and make it the dominant religion of the region? Uh, yes. It's entirely possible to do that. Oh. Like, like if I ever want to do a playthrough and, and if it's an easy place to do it, it's better to do it in India. We mentioned how messy the Eastern faiths are. Whereas it's much more simple in Europe, where being a heretic could potentially get you killed. No potential, that's happened. Yeah, and uh, and over there, and again, we use India as an example. Um, and if you try to revive a dead religion, they just view it as either astray or slightly hostile, based on the tenets or whatever views it has. So it's easier to do it over there. But there is also the future in the game where you could create your own church. Especially it's a Christian faith. I mean, creating an Indian faith is too easy, but if you really want to create a, your own version of Islam or Judaism or Christianity, rather than the preset heresies that they have in the game, of course, it can be further reduced if you go take the theologian tree and pick up the uh, prophet perk. That'll help you reduce the piety cost when creating a new faith that you customize. Set your own tenets and views and whatnot. Hell, you can even adjust what kind of marriage doctrines or crime doctrines. Like, I've seen somebody who made a, a marriage type polygamous. Um, bastards are approved all the way. Um, divorces are not allowed. <laughs> and I've seen a guy who... They changed the view of male and female adultery. A normal one, a Catholic one, they would have male adultery to be shunned and a female adultery criminal. And if you want to customize it, you can make them both accepted. No criminal. And kinslaying is okay. And witchcraft is accepted. How do they get anything done? What? You try to create your whole damn church and just try to, you know, make it a majority religion and how do you get your followers to accept that sort of thing? How are they not overrun by the next-door neighbor who weren't ridiculous? You could get away with it if you're a real strong country with a bunch of loyal vassals. That could make it practical. And if it's not practical, then the faith can die, and especially if it's the one who found it. I mean, throughout history, heresies have come and gone. Well, that's all I ever needed to hear about that. So basically, you could pull a Henry VIII on that game. Especially if you want to be the kind of faith where fucking adultery is accepted and human sacrifice is the norm. Uh, well, then actually, no, there's some restrictions. Human sacrifices are sometimes only available in certain pagan faiths and a few eastern ones, um, if you customize it. And uh, as well as a few other different tenets. That's kind of exclusive to a certain part of the world you live in. 
Like, Christians don't do sky burials like the Zoroastrians do. I mean, who the hell does that? No one, it's a stupid thing. One more thing about the, you know, the religion. Uh, well, one thing's for certain, whenever I do my first um, CK3 playthrough, I am not going to join any heresy. It's too early for that. going to be a devoted man. And, and by the way, um, each of these different branches of a religion you follow and attendance, if you choose set, you are also changing its virtues and sins. Where it's, enti where it's entirely possible you could turn lustful as a virtue and make chaste a sin. Once again, it sounds like you can't really get anything done in this game. It's basically a f sandbox game as it was for most Paradox Interactive games. So, in, in my first playthrough, I'm just going to keep it old school with what is already established and try to steer clear of any heresies if the religious fervor gets too low. That's how they spring up. So yeah, that, that's pretty much it for now. I mean, there's many more I could talk about, but I believe that's going to take too much for this. Uh, again, and, and, and finally, there'll be no nudity in my playthrough. I'll have that turned off. Uh, again, it sounds simpler. I understand more of it, but I don't... I'm not going to play it. <laughs> uh, I was just not curious, but I was... Whatever the word, lesser word for intrigued is. Not interested, but below that. Beyond a, huh, how about that? Because I actually thought Crusader Kings 3 was coming to the Xbox. Um, because I saw an achievement list, and then I forgot that, oh, Windows uses the exact same achievement list as uh, the Xbox does, because it's the same Microsoft company. Because it was free on Game Pass for PC, I thought it was going to be free on Game Pass for console, but that is apparently not the case. Again, not that I would have played it, because the one time I did play Stellaris for like an hour, I, I hated it, and it didn't explain anything. Alright. You, you remember uh, the other day that... Well, not the other day, it was yesterday, which I often say that to my friends online. Where the other day, which was last month, the other month, August, maybe. What the hell are you talking about? That one morning we were talking about video games and one thing led to another. Then we talk about consoles and then this led to some discussion that's called the console wars. And I thought we should talk about it right here in this podcast. This was an interesting conversation that we should relive again. <laughs> You're going to have to jumpstart me. In what way? In what the hell I said. Fuck, I don't remember other than... It's like you said something about the ten don't, and then the name calling and one thing led to another. It's competition. Oh yeah, I mentioned I mentioned that on Twitter. Um, in the nineties, you know, Nintendo had been this well-established company that made a lot of money, and Sega, also based out of Japan, was trying to break into the console market. It was a Genesis and Saturn and their own handheld called the Game Gear and all that, and they ran an advertising campaign called "Sega Does What Nintendo Don't," and. Uh, that didn't work so well for them because they hired an American uh, head of Sega who basically fucked up the whole marketing ploy and under under ordered consoles and under you know appreciated what Nintendo certainly have come to appreciate in terms of the video game market share. So Sega lost their ass. They at '99 they basically released a death knell glass gas console called Dreamcast, and uh, they've only been making software ever since. And so Nintendo kind of has free reign over that market. 
uh, Sony, who only made electronics at one point, uh, you know, in this N64 era, Sega, Sega Saturn, uh, the one I just called, what the fuck is it? The one I just said, Dreamcast. The Dreamcast era, they said, well, we want to get on this too, there's money to be made. So they came out with the PlayStation, et cetera, et cetera. Here we are all, you know, 20 plus years later. Uh, we're about to come out with... Oh, then at some point after the PS2 era, Microsoft says, hey, we want in on this. So they come out with the Xbox. Anyway, so they're all really three major contenders, if you want to call them that. I mean, they all want to sell you product. So they're only competing in terms of like McDonald's and Wendy's are competing, right? They're selling you the same shit. It's just different branding. Different spices, so to say. Like Sprite did 7-Up. That's a little bit too close. That's closer to like an Xbox and a PlayStation game. Like, what's the difference between the versions? Well, one's HD. Like, Sprite is HD and 7-Up isn't. Yeah, that's right. I said it. It's not a great example, but you know, that's closer. This is more like Nintendo is Sprite and Xbox is Diet Coke. Like, it's very vastly different in terms of what you get in product. Here in late 2020, we're about to have a new PlayStation called PlayStation 5 because they're just going to keep increasing in numbers. Uh, a new Xbox, which is going to have two versions, which is called the Series S and the Series X because Xbox has had terrible marketing ideas for their new console names because we went from the Xbox to the Xbox 360 to the Xbox One to the Xbox Series X because they love the sound X. Yeah, it's very 90s with their extreme cool letters. And Sony is just like, well, let's put a number on it. It's, this, it's the second one, it's the third one, it's the fourth one, it's the fifth one. Meanwhile, Nintendo has released the Switch like two years ago, three years ago. And uh, they just keep rolling along without new versions of things. But the war, such as it is, isn't really a thing among the companies themselves. It is all among the fans, right? When was the last time you played a game that was not on the Xbox or PC? Other than the games that we just mentioned. Yeah, uh, anyways, I said just besides the ones that I've mentioned, like what you mean is game exclusives? Last time you played a video game that was not on the Xbox or PC? That's my question. Gee, I don't know, one of the old GameCube games on the Wii? <laughs> so a long time ago. Yeah. I'd... So you, you don't really you don't really care about this thing. Like maybe you care next year about a Series S or a Series X. Uh, possibly, since I you know have a habit on being on the Xbox and not enough on well, PS. That... Well, the GTA Five will certainly come to the next generation, so you've got at least that. Yeah, that game will never die. <laughs> um, as long as there's made money to be, as long as there's money to be made. People keep buying bull shark cards. I don't know. You almost said bullshit. That's why they named it that. Um, Actually, Cousin Bruce keeps shark calling car, you. He's like, and uh, there's bullshark, gray white. Yeah, yeah, that, we're getting too much in that. Anyways, that's why they call it that. That's a joke from GTA 4. Um, but anyways, the fans on the internet are assholes. Because while well, we used to have cool phrases like Sega does when Nintendo don't, now if you're a Sony fan, but <laughs> if you're a Sony fan, you diss someone on Xbox by calling them an Xbot. See, they're a robot who only thinks about Microsoft products. And if you're an Xbox fan who wants to shit on a Sony fan, you call them a Sony pony. What the hell? the stupidest ass lame fuck of an insult I've ever heard in my whole life. And while I prefer the term Nintendorks, no one says this. No one disses Nintendo. They just say Nintendo fan. 
because Nintendo fans eat themselves to death. There's no war between Sony, Xbox, and Nintendo because Nintendo fans hate Nintendo so much. They're constantly on Twitter asking for new, what they call new directs, which is just conference, mini conferences. Because there was no E3 this year or any other big conference. Nintendo does shorter conferences, like 5, 15, 20 minutes long. Where they're like, okay, here's the new hardware, here's the new software, here's what's coming out, see you later. But Nintendo fan on the internet, particularly on Twitter, is very vocal about what they want and don't want. What they want is the same old recycled shit over and over. They just recently announced uh, remasters of old-ass Mario games from the 64 GameCube and Wii era, and Nintendo fan, as a collective, decided, nah, I don't actually want that, because you're charging you know, X amount of money for it, and it's only going to be available for so long. I was like, well, what do you want, Nintendo fan? I've been looking to get a Switch for like a year. I still haven't been to pull it, because there's not enough... I can think of maybe six games totally that I would want to buy on a Switch, as opposed to the 80 or so I've got on the PlayStation 4 and the 70 or so I've got on the Xbox. So there's no real huge need to transition. And with this new generation, there's even less of a need because most of the stuff will be from this generation will be backwards compatible to the next one, especially the digital content. And I have a lot of digital games, so it's like, well, I don't want to buy a new console to play old games, right? So I need more, just need more games. I would like to get the new console, certainly, but I need some more stuff for it. As off the top of my head, I can think of maybe four things that I'd be interested in for a new one. Are you going to name names or no? Sure. Uh, the Avengers game by Crystal Dynamics already came out technically, and I'm already playing it. But that will also be upgradable to next gen. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077 from CDPR comes out in November. Assassin's Creed Valhalla and Watch Dogs Legion from Ubisoft come out in October and November. So it's in that era of the future that, you know, in a couple months here, I wanted to play all those games, but I know they'll all look better next gen even though they'll be available for this gen. But every company, well, not every company, but many companies are getting this idea of buy it on current gen, get it free for next gen, right? So if you buy Cyberpunk for the Xbox One, when you buy next year or late this year an Xbox One X, you can get Cyberpunk for free there. Except for some companies like Activision, which Call of Duty, the new Black Ops, which, you know, have you seen the new Black Ops? The uh, trailer? Cold, Cold War, yes. With digital Reagan? A part of it, but I did recognize Reagan immediately, where I'm like, oh, there's Reagan. Yeah, they mo-capped him before he died. Uh, <laughs> anyways, Activision says you can buy the old game, the game on the current gen consoles, and then when it comes to new gen consoles, you can pay ten more dollars for it. And of course, the internet will complain about this, but then they'll do it. Uh... The other guys who used to do the show with me, Rob and Sizzy, are constantly, I don't want to say berate me, but they do berate me. For? Uh, give me shit for, they think I'm seeking out this negativity, and I'm really not. What I'm seeking out is opinion. The problem is that on the internet, the majority opinion is negative. And when people want to put pos a positive spin on something, they're pushed down because, well, that doesn't grab headlines, right? Mm-hmm. It is much more, you get more views by being negative, you get more clicks, you get more uh, people listening to your ranting. I don't engage with a lot of the negativity, just like from a pure, like, today, today, 
I'm reading something on my phone, and I'm like, I vehemently disagree with this idiot. I was like, you are a fucking moron, and you have no idea what you're talking about, right? Do so you know what I did? I clicked back. I stopped reading it. I put it out of my mind and moved on with my life. Sometimes I can't do this. I understand. But it's not hard to do, right? What's the easiest thing to do in the world? Not do something. People are upset about the new Madden because it's very buggy and glitchy. People are upset about the new NBA 2K21 because it's buggy and glitchy. Well, do you know why they're buggy and glitchy? Because they have to come out every year. Do you know why they have to come out every year? Because you buy them every year. If you want them to stop making them every year, stop buying them every year. You just have to make that connection of, okay, look, if you want to improve this product, the best way to do it is to stop consuming it. This will, this has been proven to work. It restructures it. If you don't like the way a TV show is going, stop watching the TV show. It is so easy to not do something, but people don't not do it. They would rather hate, they would rather consume a product and then complain about it than not consume a product at all. They would rather continue to watch a TV show that they hate and post about how much they hate it on the internet than stop watching it altogether. Um, this is a, a subset of the human psyche I'm fascinated by because it doesn't work for me. I don't do that. There have been many TV shows that I've liked, then disliked, then hated, and then stopped watching. I didn't go on Tumblr to complain about them. I just said, well, this isn't for me anymore, and I moved on with my life. My fascination with hatred on the internet is their inability to understand that you have control over your own eyeballs. I don't know if you know this, Thomas, but you can move your eyes on your own independently, and you can decide to not look at something. You can decide to not read the news. You can decide to not play a video game. You can decide to not go to a website. It is all free will, and people want to use free will as a crutch, as if they have no other choice. You know, they want the government to come and tell them what to do. They want... IGN to tell them what games to play. They want YouTube to tell them what videos to recommend. It's like, just exercise some free will. Not only you'll be happier, you'll see you'll have less negativity in your life, but uh, you can stop burdening other people with your hatred as well. Yeah, but the average Joe would say, yeah, but that's boring. I agree, and I also understand that this very podcast was founded on the pillar of hate. <laughs> And I have a lot of negative things to say, but in my defense, because I can only defend myself, I mostly say it for jokes. Mm -hmm. Like, this rant that I'm on here, ultimately, when I edit this episode and publish it, then I'm going to put it out of my head. Then I'll be done with it, right? Supposedly. Like, I won't revisit this this rant in a year. I won't give a fuck. Yeah, we've just gone into the weeds a little bit uh, further than I originally had attended. Well, that's your fault for bringing it up. I told you to get me started, and you got me started, and I, I'll never stop like that. Uh, that one song from that one band. You know, that band. What band? Right. Uh, as you were, uh, before you gone on to a bit of a tangent, uh, when you were talking about the console wars and whatnot, and when they mentioned about people wanting to play older games, and that's become a bit of a pet peeve uh, of mine, if that's even a correct term. Pet peeve? Sure, what is it? Um... What's up with game makers or game developers creating games? That's particularly the indie ones. Um, about games going back to its roots. What they mean by that is like when I was a kid. Because that's what nostalgia is. Nostalgia is... is we have this stupid-ass thought as a human society. It's not an American problem. It's not a Western problem. It's a human problem. That, that we want to yearn for the old days. 
But they don't want the old days. They want to be young again. They want to be that person. And nostalgia is not about the product, right? Like, I have a, we both have really good memories for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when we had the Sega Genesis? Oh, uh, yes. Which I thought it was just called a Sega in general to me. <laughs> you didn't play much of it at the time. I only played um, like two or three games as far as I can recall. Anyways, like, we had a lot of fun with that. But if you actually think back to what we actually had on that console, it was in our parents' room, it was on our grandfather's old-ass cathode ray tube TV you had to turn the huge dials for. Yeah, it looked like it was made in the 1950s. It was at least in the 70s. We had Sonic the Hedgehog 2, we had Streets of Rage 2, we had that uh, college basketball game. Uh, Nick, (laughs) for some ass reason, bought a fishing game that I can't remember the name, Pro Bass, something or other. We had Clue. Yeah, I was about to say Clue. We, Good thing you remember. We didn't actually have a hell of a lot. But it's and what we got. More importantly, most of these games suck. I'll set at least a dragon. Most, uh, most of these games were A, either borrowed from our cousin Edward, which sucked, or B, just plain sucked. But we don't remember that they sucked. What we remember having nostalgia for is the times that we had, not the games we played. We remember that room, we remember that TV, we remember the second controller that had the turbo button that slowed everything down because we was just pressing pause over and over really quickly. I honestly so do not remember what the controllers look like. <laughs> well, the Genesis originally had three buttons, A, B, and C, and then they had an X, Y, Z. My point being, when games, like indie games especially, because I've played a lot through Xbox Game Pass, and for Game Pass Quest to get points to buy shit, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of indie games on there, and a lot of them are 8 or 16-bit. Because they have this idiotic notion in your head that making something older, like it when it was younger, makes it better. It wasn't better back when you were younger. You were just younger. It is about who you used to be as a person. It's not about the game. It's who you were at that time with your friends, with your family, where you played it, the smell of the carpet, the coloring of the room, the food you ate. It is all that sort of thing wrapped up in youth that we use as an excuse to say, all things were better when I was a kid. And that's just straight up not true. Television, movies, music, uh, entertainment in general, especially fucking video games, all way better than they were even five years ago. They all change or evolve with the times. And they have to. And people have to also, but we just wish we didn't. We yearn for a simpler time when... You know, I've mentioned this to you before. I've never beaten a Mario game, like ever. So I don't have any nostalgia for old Mario games. So when one, you know, Switch says, oh, we're bringing all these classic Mario games to the Switch, I'm like, I don't give a shit. I don't have nostalgia for Mario. I don't have nostalgia for Zelda, for that matter. I don't have nostalgia for Donkey Kong 64 or other games I actually played on Nintendo systems. Or Donkey Kong Country. My point being... I'm interested in this idea of nostalgia from a studying standpoint because it's not something that I usually fall for. Because I can look back and say, you know what, I really liked this when I was a kid. I don't think I would like it now. And that's the reason why people use term, you know, that stuff doesn't age well. It really doesn't. And you know what else doesn't age well? People. Uh, I was trying to say earlier before, I... We've gone on like four tangents. Yeah, again, uh, make game makers, going back to it, too, it's in the way of the looks of a game. That's what I was trying to say earlier. It's just cheap. That, to, to save yourself five minutes, it's just cheap. 
it's cheaper and easier, and you don't have to worry about too hard about UI and graphics and sound. There have been a few, you know, low polygon games I've played recently that are pretty, they're neat, they're fun, but they're not like worth $20. <laughs> and some sell for more than that. So it's like, eh, this, this is a nice, cute game you made. I wish you'd make a game that, you know, looks like it came out in 2020, but, you know, you do whatever. I understand you're a small studio and you don't have a lot of money, but, you know, this game looks like it came out uh, 30 years ago. And mainly side-scrolling. Ugh, again, cheap and easy. To go back a bit, to to clumsily transition to the next topic, uh, I was mentioning before that Stizzy and Rob give me shit for looking up stuff on Twitter purposely to hate it. And it's not that I'm so much interested or fascinated by the hatred. It's I'm interested and fascinated by the defense of, right? Yeah. Like, a lot of people hate a thing, but when confronted with the why, back off. They're like, I hate the blah, blah, blah. Why? Well, you know, it sucks. Like, that's not an answer. <laughs> that sucks is not an answer. This game is ass. That is not a, a reasoned argument. I want you to back up your arguments. And even if I disagree with you, if you have sound, logical, backed up reasons for your arguments, cool. That's fine. Once again, oh, we recently got, not you and I, but me and the other two, got into it about the new Star Wars movies. And for the most part, you and I... I see like 90% agree on the new Star Wars movies, right? Especially episode 7, 8, and 9. Yes. We, I think they're fine. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them are really good. <laughs> but I'm not going to like defend to my death. You know, None of these movies are going to be the hill I die on. If you don't like them, that's okay. And if I'm egging you on about it, it's because it entertains me and I enjoy laughing at your misery. Um, but, you know, both of those guys don't like them. And... I'm not trying to defend the movie. I'm not even attacking their idea. I'm tr I'm trying to see if there are logical reasons behind why they don't like it. And for the most part, they do have logical sound reasons. I was like, you know what? Okay, I disagree with you, but it's fine because it doesn't change my opinion of you as a person. The consumering consumerism has evolved into defining who you are as a person. Whether or not you like Crusader Kings doesn't change who you are as a person. Oh, hell no. Whether or not I like, whether or not I like, you know, Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker doesn't change who I am as a person. I don't define my identity by the products I consume, by the entertainment I like, but a lot of people do, and that's where the console wars, quote unquote, come from. It's people wrap their own identity and it's like, I'm a Nintendo fan. Everything Nintendo affects me directly. Nintendo is something attacked. If someone attacks Nintendo, it's like they're attacking me. And that's a stupid-ass way to think. But millions and millions of people think that way. And yet far too many people create their own websites to dedicate blog news on certain things. Hell, they'll even cover the CEO of Nintendo is taking a shit in an outhouse. And we gotta cover that as a piece of news. And not necessarily. So we can get opinions from others. It's like, oh, how dare he take that shit like that. <laughs> That's pretty much true. I mean, you see, it's an election year, so that's fucking everywhere. People tie their identity into whether or not they play games, whether or not they're Republican, whether or not, you know, even their stupid shit that doesn't matter, like their gender identity and their sexual orientation. Like, none of those are who you are as a person. So it is dumb to define yourself by the media you consume. I don't, despite the literally millions of hours I've put into video games in my life, although I don't know, actually, I've even lived a million hours. 
I don't still I still don't like calling myself a gamer because I don't like labels. Oh, I don't like that either. I that I hate that to be my legacy. Uh, Rob brought up a good point the other day. He's like, if you watch movies, no one calls you a movie watcher. Movie goer. Movie goer. It's like, well, what does that mean? Yeah, but you're only a movie goer when you're going to the movie. You watch the movie when you're there watching the movie, but you get called a gamer when you're not playing games. It's a stupid term, and we should stop defining ourselves by these terms. I think so the, you something um, about... And I think the biggest offender of that is generation definition. A Gen X or a millennial, all that. Those are worse. That's so ill-defined. It's very dumb, I think, to define a generation when you're still living in it. Uh, it is even dumber to define one as better than the other. Just because we're both millennials doesn't mean, you know... What does that even mean? Well, that's just based on the year you were born. Yes, but who says that? Who defines what years? Um, people. Fuck those people. <laughs> Anyways, you had something about movies. I want to get to that. Because this is already going long, and I have to cut, like, 40% of it. Well, <laughs> okay, calm down. <clears throat> the last time you ever talked about a movie of any kind of a podcast was with you and Stizzy. Um, I mean, I wasn't there. It was just you and Stizzy, and you were talking Avengers uh, Infinity War. I was about to say Endgame. Every, it always comes up in the mind. Well. Uh and I know I don't often talk about film or television very much on this podcast with you because I'm pretty much game oriented. Most of what you watch, no, because most of what you watch is foreign movies or TV shows from like Czechs, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic. Uh-huh. Yeah, just mainly that most people won't understand, and I and I'm alright with it because that's where I can get my influence and ideas from for potential writing ideas. Yeah, people tend to forget that I write original fictional stories. But that's not what we're here for, these original fictional stories. You know, ever since this, um, during these times, the pandemic era, that most people would just go back and watch old shit or watch whatever is new on television. Not the news, we mean original production, you know, TV, film, or even a documentary or two, right? Uh, and some would yes, just, edit out that burp. Yeah, and some would have to go back on some of the things that... They may have never even seen in their lives, including a couple of which I have never seen. Like I've always heard about it and I thought, well, since there's this limited time on Earth we all have, one would think, let's go so might as well watch some of the stuff we've never seen before. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there's a couple of movies that, regardless of release date, um, that really stood out to me um, that I've watched this year. Movies like The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, again, I'm just listing these down. Shawshank Redemption. The Green Mile, Alexander, um, that's 2004 version, not to be confused with Alexander from 56. Um, there's two different ones. Um, I've also seen Gladiator, Clue, Knives Out, and two big-time um, Tamil-language Indian movies, such as Sakar and Bigel. And last, no, no, two months ago, I watched a movie that was on, well, readily available on YouTube, which I was just curious and look it up only because I heard it all the time and all that negative shit people say you know what else I've watched I have no idea the Star Wars holiday special oh wait you did mention this to me yes yeah that that was that was something this isn't the thing that you've been teasing to me off air I'll edit this out this isn't the thing you've been teasing to me off air that I might want to see myself uh, 
No, but this next one I just uh, watched earlier this morning. Um, only because I heard about it, and so I gave it a watch with an open mind, of course, because that's how I operate. I watch it with an open mind, and I suggest you do the same for future releases or whatnot of whatever movies you look forward to. And you can find that movie on YouTube. Um, and that movie is called Abraxas, Guardian of the Universe. You know what, I've actually heard of this. You, you know what that's about? And by heard of this, I mean I've seen the cover. So I can't tell you any more than that. Uh, seen the cover? Like, was it just oh, on some poster in the background? Possibly. Go on, I'll, I'll try to think of where I've heard it. Um, Abraxas, Guardian of the Universe. Not Guardian of the Galaxy. Guardian of the Universe. Big difference between a universe and a galaxy. Go on. <laughs> yeah, it stars um, Jesse Ventura. Yes, the former professional wrestler and former governor of Minnesota. That Jesse Ventura. That's how I know. That's how I know about it. Yes. Yeah, that guy. Uh, in which he, it, I mean, he's been in movies before. You've seen him in Predator, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the Running Man. Yeah, but those weren't starring roles. Those are supporting, right? No, and those were good movies. Yeah, and this is probably one of the very few that. Jesse Ventura actually starred in a movie. What year did this come out? March 1st, 1991. The release date that was in Toronto. It was filmed in Canada, mind you. Well, most movies are. So, it's low-budget uh, sci-fi action thriller. You don't say. <laughs> yeah, And you didn't do filming in Canada. No, that's no lower budget than that. <laughs> Mexico. That's another cheap country you could film? Yes. You could also film it in Prague. That's just as cheap. Yeah. So you've never seen Abraxas? No, I know about. I, I as soon as you said it started just in Turner, I was like, oh yeah, now it's triggering. I know of the, of its existence purely because of him. Yeah, but you don't know the whole plot. I mean, do we need this? Do we want? Do we really, want to? Do we want to review I, this movie? Even I, though I, seen I, I prefer you didn't. But you know what? When you say that term, it sounds like a floor cleaner. What, a Braxis? Yeah. Like more. It's like something you, you spread on a sponge and use it to wipe your tile. So again, you can actually look that up on YouTube if you wanted to. It's it's a pretty short movie. Um, it's about an hour and 27 or so. Nah. Although, to be fair, like, you recommend movies to me all the time. And maybe one out of every hundred I'll actually watch. The last one, you know, it's been a year now since it came out. But the last one you actually recommended to me that I actually did watch was Knives Out, uh, directed by famed Last Jedi director Ryan Johnson. Or Ryan Johnson. I thought I heard some people say Ryan. Only because I'm I've seen say... I've, I've seen a girl's name of that, but that's with two ends. Oh, for fuck's sake. Plus, it's just a model. I'm just saying Rian. Rian Johnson. Sounds like a Star and Wars for the name. For the, for the name. most part, it was very good. I think I gave, I think on my personal scale of a very simple five scale, I think I had a four. The problem is it's one of those mystery movies, and I figured out the mystery, and there was a half hour left. And I was like, oh, fuck, I have to wait for all the characters to catch up to me. And that's not bragging. I've consumed a lot of detective fiction in my life. Uh, not to give any personal information away, but our father 
uh, was a cop for like 25 years. So just ancillary stuff through that. And he, growing up, wrote, read a lot of detective fiction too. A lot of Tom Clancy stuff or, you know, spy thrill and all that shit. Uh, I have personally read every Sherlock Holmes story. I've consumed a lot, a fuckload of detective TV shows and movies. And so, you know, I'm well versed in the genre of the whodunit, such as it is. So when I watched Knives Out, you know, I, I was like, oh, I get it. It's like, okay, so, well, I guess I'll just wait here for the movie to keep going with it. If you say so. But anyways, that's how rare it is for me to actually watch one of your movies that you recommend to me. So it's unlikely I'll be seeing Abraxas or whatever the fuck it's called. Even if it's ready, readily available. Just because something's available doesn't mean it should be consumed. Like, dirt is readily available. Would you like to eat it? Just go out and get a handful of dirt. It's there. <laughs> it's free. It's free real estate. <laughs> and again, the reason why I mentioned this particular film, it's not because it really stood out to me earlier this morning before this recording. It's just... Why is it considered a cult classic to some people? I don't like the... Ter- That's another term I don't like. Cult classic. Well, when you say cult classic, like uh, at the beginning of this movie list, you said Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank is considered a cult classic because it was not well-reviewed and didn't make a lot of money. It wasn't until later with the advent of home video and DVD that people started watching and say, hey, you know what? This is pretty good. So the, the term cult classic I take issue with because while well, that used to mean schlocky, shitty 80s movies like that, it now has just come to mean a movie that wasn't popular in its initial run. Like, you can't call any superhero or Star Wars or Disney movie cult classic, because they all are seen by everyone and make a lot of money. So cult classic just means not enough people saw it. And this one is no exception. Well, if by those vague definitions of no one saw it, yes. Whether or not it should be seen is another matter. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all I was about to say. It's like, yeah, I brought that up and I thought we could possibly honor or be with ourselves if you saw that too, but I don't know. <laughs> my, my only... Well, let's talk about this off here. The only idea I would have for it is if I'd have to watch it like three times speed so it goes by faster because I'm very impatient with this sort of shit. Well, as I said, like short. Like, er, like before, before... No, no, it was like... When you were like Shawshank and what the fuck was the first, the other one you said? Green Mile. The other one. Green Mile. Those are three-hour movies, dude. And they're not like action-heavy, like Endgame or something that's almost three hours and can get away with it. No, this is all drama. And it's dark, bleak drama, and it takes place at night in prison. Those are two long-ass prison movies. I understand they're critically acclaimed, and everyone likes them, you know, other fans of the, other fans, other hosts of this show. I uh, really like those movies. I've never seen either of them to completion because they're too long. Both Rob and Stacy saw them. You know how many settings it took me to watch the freaking Lord of the Rings movies? I couldn't watch those all in one go. I only watched the first one, Fellowship, in one go because I was ill and couldn't move. I don't remember what I had, but because it was a long time ago. But my point being, my point stands. It's like I have a large degree of patience for video games to get going. I have a tiny degree of patience for movies and TV shows. It's like, you need to do something right fucking now, and you need to do it often. I don't get tired from action movies. I know a lot of people, like, I've heard before people get burnt out from, like, heavy action movies, like a Marvel movie, just too much is going on. 
I feel the opposite. I love when too much is going on. Yeah, I kind of feel slightly the opposite, but I believe that's just me being, you know... Uh... No, that's different personality. Like, like to, let's bring it back to a video game. Uh, I'm playing Ghost of Tsushima, the new game from Sucker Punch that came out this year. And it does some interesting things with the user interface and the screen of how it takes you to the next objective. And while it is an, an interesting system and one that Stizzy particularly likes, I don't like it. Be not because it's different, but because you know this from living with me. I get lost very easily. I have a very poor sense of direction in real life and in video games. Open world. So regardless of... Huh? And open world. Regardless of what kind of video game, even if it's a fucking linear corridor shooter, I always check maps. I'm like, okay, am I going the right way? Is this the way I'm supposed to go? Hold on, wait, hold on. Every, like, ten feet, I'll be like, wait, is this the way I'm supposed to go? Because I have so little retention for spatial area. I'm very bad at spatial, not awareness, but uh, whatever the fucking word is for knowing where I am. Aware? In a large. Awareness? I guess. No, that's, that's not it, because I know, I know me, and I know what's around me. I don't know what's over there, because I'm not over there yet. You still have the perception? But any, my, my, my point being... Like, he really likes the mechanic because the, the interface is very clean. Like, when you're playing Red Dead, if you turn off all the icons and you turn off the mini-map, it's a very clean system, right? You just see your character. I don't like clean systems. I like messy systems. I like a lot of information on the screen. And, which means, I, you know, in, in games, I need mini-maps. I need to know which friggin' direction I'm going, especially in a huge-ass open-world game like that. Um, it's just a, a difference of opinion. It's not like... Maybe because I have ADD, and maybe because I always talk a million miles an hour and think a million miles an hour that I need everything in my life to be going on very quickly, that I don't have patience for slow shit, but that's probably what it is. Sounds like you thrive on chaos. I really do. I, I love busyness. I am the most calm when crazy shit's going on. I'm a chaos vampire, I've decided. Anyways, so that was like branch of branch on branch on branch of tangent. Do you have anything else? This is a very long episode. I'm going to have to cut. Of course, we got to, you know, wrap it up by plugging in the goddamn channel of mine. Not like I do that literally every episode. What is it? Uh, that's the Lord Master channel. I know what it is. Say it for the audio. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> About my upcoming plans? Sure. So, I mean, we've talked about Crusader Kings 3, um, that my first video series will be coming later in the month, if not the next, depending on how am I feeling and uh, ready for the commitment. I recently put up a poll, which I uh, will soon have it get rid of, knowing what the result's going to be, um, that the first playthrough, the first country I'm expected to play as a Crusader Kings 3 will be Asturias, the kingdom in northern Spain, d in 867 AD, in the Viking Age. Where we're not going to be dealing against Vikings. We're going to be dealing with those guys just the south of Astorias. Which are mainly those um, Muslims who have been living in Spain for a while now. It's the Reconquista era. The Reconquest. And we got to drive these guys out of the peninsula. Even though it's going to take hundreds of years. So, so yeah, that's one of them. As well as, you know, an Oregon Trail video. Which I do that every three months. Much like how we do a podcast every three months. I don't try to think about that. Feels like it, in average. And, uh, whatever the hell else I'm going to be doing and for other pieces of content. And where, and 
where can they find you on this here internet? Um, at the Lord Master channel and Lord Master YouTube channel. I don't know why I was about to say the Twitter handle, but I ain't got no Twitter, no Lord Master Twitter. I don't have no Facebook or Instagram named Lord Master. Hell, I don't even have a fucking TikTok or Lord Master. Why would you need one? You're not a 17-year-old girl who wants to shake her ass. I assume that's all TikTok is, or some jackass who's like, Hey, you remember Vine? I'm going to do a Vine thing. Anyways, that is a rant for another time. Uh, thank you for tolerating this nonsense for the last however long this is. Uh, you can find that's where you can find him. You find me, uh, basically everywhere on the internet as Loki Jarson, uh, especially on Twitter where you can fight me for real. I will fight you on any topic, even if I don't care about. Yes, send your hate tweets at Loki Jarson. Yes, at L O K I J A R S O N. No spaces. Uh, thank you and goodbye.